Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters. My name is Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. On this edition of the podcast, we're belatedly marking Learning Disability Awareness Week. It actually took place last week and we're focusing on how the nursing profession works with the approximately 1.5 million people in the UK who have a learning disability. People with learning disabilities still die around 25 years sooner than the general population on average. They've been disproportionately affected by COVID and suffered in some high-profile healthcare scandals. So how can we improve healthcare for people with disabilities? Joining me as co-host today is Mary Codling, our Professional Nursing Committee member for South East England, who is a learning disabilities nurse. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hello, Rachel. I'm good, thank you. Mary, tell us a bit about your current role. Well, my current role is um, a lead for primary health care, mainly educating sort of primary health care professionals around the needs of people with learning disability and setting up services to improve access for people with learning disability. And I also work alongside all other health services to improve access and increase awareness around the needs of people with learning disabilities. And Mary, why do we need a Learning Disabilities Awareness Week? We need the week to actually raise awareness around people with learning disabilities and their needs. And for years, you know, people with learning disabilities were seen as a marginalised group that not everyone knew the needs of people or just some of the things that cause barriers for people to access normal services in the way that you and I do. So, you know, the week was set up many years ago by Mencap to, to raise that awareness. The theme around this year's Awareness Week is art and creativity. And the reason for those two sort of uh, concepts relates to last year with COVID, where lots of people with learning disabilities had to be creative in order to sort of get by day to day and access services. So, yeah, so the themes is this year actually reflect how people have sort of managed last year and some of the things that they've done and and been creative in the way that they access services compared to what they would normally have done. Listeners might be surprised to hear that there are only 17,000 trained learning disability nurses in the UK and that that figure has dropped by 40% over the last decade. The latest report from the RCN finds that this shortage in specialist staff could actually be putting lives at risk. So we're delighted to be joined today by Jim Blair, who is a consultant learning disability nurse. Hello, Jim, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hi, Rachel. Hello, everyone. And it's great to be with you today. Jim, we'll come on to talk a bit about what exactly learning disability nursing entails and why there aren't enough of you later on in this episode. But how did you get into this field of nursing? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Completely by accident. It is the honest answer. I um, saw an advert in South London Press. I was living in South West London at the time for a support worker. Um, and it was the uh, early 90s, about 91, 92. And I thought, wow, you get paid to work with people. This is fabulous. What's not to enjoy? And I'd already done a, a degree in passive and nonviolent ways towards change. And my whole sort of raison d'etre, if you like, the whole being for me is all around health, social and rights justice uh, for people, whoever they are, wherever they live and whatever situation they're in. So when I got this job, I just thought, this is absolutely brilliant. It dovetails with everything. And I really enjoyed working with the people. And um, I found that I was thought I was okay at it. Um, and so what I did is when they um, had an advert out, 
within the organization for people to do their learning disability nurse training. Um, I threw my hat into the ring and to my surprise, I got it. Um, and that was really how I got into learning disability nursing. I'd never heard of it before. Um, but it was a fabulous accident, if you know what I mean. I do, yeah. Hello, we're also delighted to welcome Scott Watkin, who is Head of Engagement and Seeability, a charity that stands up for better eye care for people with learning disability, autism and sight loss. How are you, Scott? I'm very well, thank you, and I'm delighted to be here to speak to you all today. We're delighted to have you. And Scott, how did you get into working with Seeability? So my career started off back in 2009, really, when I was the co-national director for learning disabilities. And um, Seeability saw me and they read up on me and they said to me, it would be great if you could come and work for us as an organisation to talk about what life is like for a person with a learning disability and a visual impairment, because I have a learning disability and a visual impairment myself. So I was able to talk about it firsthand on what my vision was like, but actually how I needed to um, battle the system to get the right eye care for for me and that's really how I got into seeability and to work with them really. That's brilliant Scott and you obviously aim to involve other people in their own healthcare and decision making? Yes I do and I think whilst I going back to when I was co-national director back in 2009, it was very clear that people with learning disabilities needed to have a voice not only within healthcare to understand the barriers to the health inequalities that we have now, but also to highlight this at a government level because actually what was always missing was professionals saying and thinking that they know best but actually what we weren't always doing was asking people with learning disabilities about their health care needs and what they wanted and what they needed. It's worth noting that if we had done this podcast as we're doing today if we'd done it 10 years ago we possibly wouldn't have heard from somebody like yourself. But do you think that today people with learning disabilities are able to influence and be heard? I think people with learning disabilities now have a bigger voice, but whether we're listened to, to being able to get the healthcare needs that we need, that's another matter, because we're still seeing the scandals, the abuse of Winterbourne View that happened over 10 years ago now and the Walton Hall scandal and we're still noting that people like Oliver McGowan who died unnecessarily in hospital and staff failed them that really lessons still need to be learned from that from, and, and actually we should be understanding and talking to people with learning disabilities 
and putting them at the centre of their healthcare needs and asking them and giving them the time to understand what is needed for them to live a good, healthy life instead of the assumptions that are always being made. So basically you're saying that people, yes, they have got a voice, but they're not always heard. No, and that's why I think we need a balance of power in terms of a power shift. Too often professionals make the decision on behalf of the person with a learning disability around their healthcare needs and because they take the easy option. But actually, if you talk to the person and you give the time to help them understand what those, what their needs are and what is going to happen and you're patient with that person and you, you talk to the family as well. So you involve everybody, then you'll have a better understanding and the person will be able to make an informed decision. Despite the rhetoric that COVID-19 has been a leveller of people, the crisis has been felt more keenly by those already disadvantaged in society. And people with disabilities have often been severely impacted by lockdowns, by isolation that comes with the lockdowns, and by the lack of access to healthcare provision. They've been shown to have poorer outcomes from the disease itself, probably as a result of comorbidities, and possibly in some cases as a result of a lack of understanding of information about COVID-19. We've even seen reports of people with learning disabilities being subject to do-not-resuscitate decisions without consent from them or their families. Mary, how has COVID affected your practice? At the very beginning of COVID, it affected my practice quite dramatically because Obviously, you know, access to to primary health care and access to health services generally weren't happening for anyone. So obviously everything came to a standstill. And in particular, you know, I think a lot of the, the places where people with learning disabilities perhaps reside in sheltered living, nursing homes, residential homes, that really came to a standstill. After the first lockdown, obviously, NHS England sent out a recommendation that things should start coming back. And one of the particular things that they recommended was the annual health checks. Obviously, all the practices started doing that, but it started doing it in a very different way. So it was either virtual or by phone. For me personally, I did a lot of sort of Zoom calls and team calls with people with learning disabilities and with GP practices. And, you know, I was amazed at how people with learning disabilities adapted. And they really were creative in the ways that they worked. And this is a whole new world for them. It's a whole new world for all of us. But for people with learning disabilities in particular, and a number of people who've never used virtual, everyone seems to sort of have taken to it. And, you know, they they really stepped up. And it actually, it, it taught us a lot as well, because... You know, in a recent Zoom call with a recent group, there was a lot of people on that who actually preferred their consultation through virtual mm. as opposed to, to face-to-face. We assume sometimes that we know what's best for an individual and 
actually, you know, it's about giving people choices. And a number of people said they would have preferred that method and, and would like to continue doing that particular method. So, you know, sitting virtually talking to a GP, they felt they were being listened to. It was a very one-to-one. Other people had phone consultations and things like blood pressure, weight, all of that was managed by either residential staff or their parents or people from the learning disability team where you have nurses employed would go into some of those places and do those particular interventions and then feed that back to the GPs. So, you know, together, I think there was a lot of partnership working right through everyone pulled together and that was remarkable and it was wonderful to see all the services working together but people with learning disabilities I mean you know this week about being creative I mean they've been very creative and they've been remarkable and they you know they've learned new skills it's a new way of working I was just amazed at, at how well people have worked and have continued to do so and just that pulling together and that partnership working across different agencies has been remarkable. Scott, have you um, required access to healthcare services sort of during the time of the pandemic? Yes. So there were there was a time where I was suspected to have COVID. And so I phoned up my doctor's surgery. They said, we can't help you. You need to phone NHS 111. And all they told me was to do was to get tested. Now, at that time, there was a shortage of tests and I was really unwell, could barely get out the house. And the nearest test I could get was Portsmouth. And I live on the Isle of Wight. So when my doctor did phone, he told me all I needed to do was take paracetamol and rest and sleep and drink fluid. For somebody with a learning disability, I had no confidence after that in at all with the NHS through this to how they were going to work with people with learning disabilities and treat people with learning disabilities. And I just thought to myself, if I'm having to go through this, through it in this way, how many other people are going to have to go through it with a learning disability in the same way? I think it's shocking, really. But I can understand why they were doing it. Um, Don't get me wrong. But it was very shocking. And have you heard from sort of other people who use the services of Seeability about their experiences mirror yours or other, you know, is there a range of, of experiences of people seeking healthcare during the pandemic? So I know lots of people that have had the same experience of me, including people at Seeability. Let's talk about the um, getting the jabs, shall we? Because actually people with learning disabilities had to fight to get the jabs. We had to also register some of the people we support as staff so they could get their vaccination. Government and everybody were not prioritising people with learning disabilities to be able to have a vaccination. I know people that have died from COVID and things on the death certificate have been put 
or that person's got a learning disability or there's been DNARs put in place and there's been no consultation on it at all. The doctors have just assumed that somebody needs a DNAR because there's no point resuscitating someone with a learning disability. To my mind, that's awful because if they did that to me, I would be so upset. I would be turning in my grave and I'd be haunting that doctor if that happened to me. You know, do you think there's a, an assumption in, in those cases that people aren't able to make that such major decisions for themselves? People judge. People with learning disabilities assume that we can't live a the same quality life as everybody else. So they assume we don't have capacity. So they feel that they can make the decision without even going through a capacity assessment to being able to make sure that somebody with a learning disability to being able to sign a DNAR if they chose to or even consult. We're not treated as human beings. We're treated as aliens a lot of the time because the fact of the matter is people see us as third-class citizens. They don't see us as equal citizens in the community. I want to just come on to, to Jim to ask, Jim, whether you think that health and care services generally recognise the particular needs of those with learning disabilities during a global pandemic. No, they haven't. Um, far the reverse, actually. And I think just about, about Scott's point, you know, the, the thing about cardiac uh, pulmonary resuscitation, so the resuscitation thing, the question you're actually asking somebody, if you ask them, and of course we know, as it's been well documented, many health professionals don't uh, seem to bother to ask people, it's really about whether you want your heart started if it stops. It's not a hard question to ask. It's about how you do it and about how you phrase it in a way that somebody can understand it. So it's about tuning into someone's frequency. But to answer your question directly, Rachel, no. I see no sign that that the majority of health professionals uh, do tune into people's frequency because if they did, if they did, 20 you, people with learning disabilities wouldn't be dying 25 years younger on average than, than other people. We wouldn't have the cataclysmic health inequalities that we have that what has been shone a light on by COVID, at which people with learning disabilities were dying at a rate six times more likely than those without a learning disability. And those uh, under the age of 30 were dying at a phenomenally high rate compared to those of the similar age group that didn't have a learning disability. So we see the value that people place on their lives, whether it's conscious or subconscious. But I think there's another element here. We can't always lay the blame at health professionals, social and educational professionals, when in their education and training, there's a massive deficit in their learning. How many of them get exposure and experience to working with, alongside, and for people with the learning disabilities? But also, how many services actually do what they say they're going to do, involving people with learning disabilities and their families, in developing and involving practices and how things should go forward? Very few, but a lot of hot air has talked about it. So, Jim, how should we be training, specifically if we're thinking about nursing professionals, how should we be training nursing professionals to work specifically with people with learning disabilities? Well, I think we've also got to be very careful here because it seems to be at the moment there's some confusion. Uh, there's this learning disability and or autism. 
autism is a very different situation for someone um, and has very different presentations for that individual and very different challenges for people that have autism that do not have a learning disability. Learning disability nurses are specifically trained to work with people with a learning disability. And I think when you think about the wider workforce, what we need is for people to understand the health needs, the rights and care requirements of people with the learning disabilities and also their skills and abilities to enforce what's happening. So in many universities, there's things like people with learning disabilities acting as simulated patients in, in OSCEs and other things to evolve that. There are people with learning disabilities uh, as lecturers. In fact, at St George's Hospital Medical School um, over 30 years ago, it was the first uh, medical school in the world where you could train to become a doctor where you'd have to do learning disability placement. And still to this day, there are learning disability lecturers, people with a learning disability that lecturers there. And that's the sort of thing we need to shift. But if we're really serious about improving it for everybody, not just for nursing staff and everyone, we've really got to see a mind shift and this power uh, imbalance that's still there. Services like to think that they're uh, needs-led and people-led and individuals-focused. They're not. They're still really not that. Because the rationale about that, Rachel, is if they were, why don't we see more people uh, on boards that are directors that have a learning disability, as governors of services, as those that are involved in decision-making, where people with learning disabilities have not been integral right from the start in, in evolving those reports and the guidance that comes forward. That's when we will change it. And to focus just on nursing, I think everybody in the nursing family needs to have a placement experience with people with a learning disability. And every university should be employing people with learning disabilities to help build, create and deliver their programs of learning alongside siblings and family members because those that know them best are those that know them best. We as health professionals know very, very little. We get a glimmer uh, of light into somebody's life and it's a great honour to have that privilege, but we know very little. We don't live 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year with that person who's got a learning disability or indeed being that person with a learning disability. So we have got to shift the whole concept. And until we do that, we will still see the health inequalities growing, not reducing, growing, and more people dying avoidably. Training specifically in learning disability nursing is something that's unique to the UK. Is it a good thing that there is that specific training, sort of aside from the fact that everybody should um, receive some exposure Yes, I think it is. I think what's fabulous about the UK is that there are learning disability nurses. What's a bit of a challenge is sometimes uh, those nurses and others, uh, their roles don't seem to be very clear. Others don't seem to always understand them. And I think it's very simple. I'll give you the framework that I think we need to have for learning disability nurses going forward. It's a give me five approach. And on the thumb is addressing diagnostic overshadowing. This is a hidden killer for people with a learning disability. It's a bit like, so I'm a 53-year-old guy who wears glasses and is a white chap who lives in North London. If I smack my head against the wall now, you, Rachel, won't think, oh, well, that's just what white guys who are 53 wear glasses and live in North London. That's just what they do. You wouldn't think that. You'd look beyond that for a reason as to why my behaviours change. Is it a mental or physical reason? You throw in a learning disability into that. Ah, it's the learning disability that made Jim do that. That's not the case. That's what diagnostic overshadowing is. It's where people... Um, mask and don't look beyond what's actually there for that person and understanding what's happening. And that's what learning disability nurses are particularly good at doing, tuning into that frequency of that person with the individual, their nonverbal and verbal cues alongside their families, as well as other health professionals. That's an integral role of the learning disability nurse. The next one is understanding the health issues as they present in people with the learning disability. So it may be 
that someone's behavior has changed slightly, or there's an increase in new behavior or an old behavior that, that's increased. And thinking again, back to the bit about seeing beyond what is in front of you, because even sugar looks like salt. You can't always see and believe what you see. You have to go beyond that. And that links with the diagnostic of shadowing, but understanding the health profile, things like um, aspiration pneumonia, pneumonia, uh, epilepsy, and other related issues that we know are significant early death creators for people with a learning disability. Then the middle one, and this is the most crucial, and this is the one that's at the core about the balance of power shift, that learning disability nurses and those that work within the settings uh, within, within where learning disability nurses are really have to be involved in service evolution, care dynamics, and creative futures with and for people with learning disabilities on boards, in positions of power. So that's one of the key things. Then the, the fourth element of, of the hand, fourth finger of the hand, is really looking at education and action, modelling, shaping and evolving the care. That's what learning disability nurses are particularly good at doing and ensuring that other people can be skilled without, in that way. And then the fifth element is the understanding of the law, Human Rights Act, Equality Act, Mental Health Act and Mental Capacity Act. And understanding those things and shaping all together, all five of those, you can't miss one finger. You've got to have all five to make it work. Five elements make the framework for learning disability nurses. And that's what provides us with a great opportunity to enhance the, and save the lives of people with a learning disability alongside them and all health professionals. Scott, in your experience of healthcare and those of the people you work with, do you recognise a difference in the approach of specialist learning disability nurses in the way that Jim's described? Yes. So I think that if you had a learning disability nurse in every single trust, three or four, in every single hospital, whether it's a big hospital, whether it's a small hospital, they're able to advocate on on the person's behalf to be able to support the person with a learning disability to be able to get the right health care at the right time at the right place i think currently it's up to trust's discretions to whether they employ somebody with with the with a specialism around the learning disability nursing background but I think it should be mandatory I think it needs to happen and I think it should have happened years ago I think the other part of this is if we're going to do this properly and we're serious around the Oliver McGowan mandatory training to make sure that all health professionals get the training that they need to be able to to work with people with learning disabilities to make sure that their health needs are met, met health professionals, doctors, everybody has to take it really, really seriously. And, and actually, that some there's something around it shouldn't just be e-learning for me. It should actually be exposing them to people with learning disabilities, putting the doctors and, and everybody in difficult situations so they can understand and they can really see what they need to what they need to um do because actually the only way you're going to learn to be able to work to understand somebody with a learning disability is being thrown into the fire pit and actually just dealing with it and thinking on your feet. The damning thing that happened when Jeremy Hunt was Secretary of State 
was he took away all the bursaries for learning the nursing. That was the biggest mistake he could have done because now it doesn't make it as attractive to go and study and train in learning disability nursing. So there are more jobs in learning disability nursing now than there are trained learning disability nurses. It's the 10-year anniversary of the BBC Panorama documentary that exposed the abuse of patients at Winterbourne View Hospital. More recently, an inquiry has started into similar events at Muckermore Abbey. Scott, you've talked about deaths of of patients and Oliver McGowan as an example. We're still um, hearing too much about failures of care. And COVID-19 has really exposed many of the cracks in our healthcare system. It's shone a spotlight, as Jim has said. And one of them was that patients with learning disabilities are still too often treated as invisible, given too little input into their own treatment. And we've heard that from Scott and Jim. So how can we really democratise decision making and and truly listen to and hear the voice of learning disability patients? Yeah, just over to Scott on that note. Scott, you work with Seeability and obviously they've managed to secure important changes in the NHS for the provision of eye care. Looking at that piece of work and listening to what you've been saying earlier about people with learning disability decision-making, learning disability nursing, how would you foresee taking some of that work the C-Ability have done and actually making those changes for people with learning disabilities so you could actually shift the power and actually have more decision-making made with the individual and looking at partnership decision-making? Yeah, so I don't think it's just our eye care stuff. So we've just won a big award at CIP, two big awards because of our eye care work at Seability. And that is absolutely fantastic. And I used to work in the eye care team for about five years previously before I took on my new role at Seability as Head of Engagement. And I think whilst there's lots of barriers within eye care and vision and there's lots of need the support to get good eye care and vision, but there's also the need for people across the whole of the healthcare trust, healthcare, to being able to get the right health care for the right person in the right place. And one of the biggest things for me is around, actually, we've got to make sure that a person is at the centre of everything that we're doing, doing around this. We've got to be person-centred thinking We've got to not sideline the families, so the families do need to be involved in those decisions. And so one of the things we've done at Seability is, is, is called the Big Conversation, and my programme of work really fits into that because whilst I'm mentoring and supporting the people that we support to be leaders and to be able to make sure that they get the right health care, but also to be able to speak up for themselves, to be able to tell people 
why they need that healthcare and why they need their needs met. I think that's really important. But I also think that actually our big conversation at Seeability, which is around live, love, thrive and belong, that is one of the key things that people with learning disabilities really need in their lives at the moment because if they have all of those four things or five things they're going to be able to lead healthy independent lives and that's what we try to promote at seeability and try to make happen at, with it with our with the people that we support so i encourage everybody to be part of that big conversation and that kicks off in July, that big conversation. But we massively need a power, a balance of power here. So we need people with learning disabilities taking NHS England government departments and local authorities and all of those people who hold the purse string to account really because at the moment there's actually it's putting the person with a learning disability second but actually if you had a balance of power with people with learning disabilities families maybe one professional on that panel but make it that the power is 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 more with the people with learning disabilities and families, then professionals will start to sit and listen and have to be able to to answer the questions, really, and, and to be able to be accountable. At the moment, that doesn't happen. And so you get all these lovely reports, so like LEADER and... And, and all of these scandals that have happened, and the trust come back and go, oh, well, sorry, lessons have been learned. To be honest with you, it's absolutely shocking that they just keep saying that. What we need is we need some action. We need some accountability. We need to be able to be, as people with learning disabilities and families, to be taken seriously and not be put on the back foot all the time. And we are it feels like most of the time that we are a forgotten group. Thank you, Scott. I think just on that note, just over to Jim and listen to what Scott has said, Jim. How do you think we can empower people with learning disability to have that voice? Well, I think we've got... We've, thank you, Mary, and thank you, Scott. I mean, Scott, you, you, you're a phenomenal chap, and uh, it's, it's great to have you as a friend as well as someone as a, as a colleague because you're very wise words and you always tell the truth. And sometimes, you know, you don't, I don't want to hear what you've got to say uh, because it's uncomfortable, but we need to hear that. But how we've got to do it, there's, there's not an option in my mind not to do it. If we're serious about improving and enhancing and saving the lives of people with learning disability, we are left with but one option. There is one solution as a nation. And in this allegedly developed country, which is permitting people to be dying 25 years younger on average than others in society, those with a learning disability, namely, we really have got to do this option. And that is, as Scott was mentioning and talking about, three co-national directors, one, a parent, 
One, a person with a learning disability like Scott was those years back, and the other a professional. Already you see a shift in the balance of power. Two out of the three national directors are people with living experience, be it parental, sibling, or direct living experience of having a learning disability. Then we need a panel, and that panel is a quality improvement panel, which looks at developing um, and evolving what's going on through planning, developing, and training, monitoring, and improving quality and taking responsibility and accountability for service evolution and care delivery across health, education and care. And in that panel, it should be made up of 51% people with a learning disability, 34% family members, with only 15% made up of professionals. Sadly, far too frequently, professionals make up the vast majority of every meeting, every board and every organisation within which um, people with learning disabilities are supposed to be um, deeply ingrained in a personalised manner. And I think once we get that, we will get a shift. We also then get, with that, becomes accountability and responsibility for those on that quality improvement panel to hold, to be held to account and to move forward. Now, I know this works and I'll explain why I know this works, because that panel and that makeup of those panels was what I did when I was a consultant nurse at uh, the two acute hospitals I've been in London. They were chaired by someone with a learning disability and a parent of someone with a learning disability. And the groups were made up very similar along that percentage line. And they held me to account and other colleagues as to how we can get things right, what the education and training is going to be, how it's going to be delivered and who's going to deliver it. And what's the service evolution that we're going to look for and seek and how we know we're improving quality, because that's the key thing at the moment. How do we know we're getting things right or wrong? And behind all of this, is the ideas kind of model that I would suggest this panel needs to do. And Scott and I have mentioned this in Parliament at the uh, all-party uh, learning disability, uh, sorry, all-party disability meeting just a couple of weeks ago, and we've written about it in, in Care Talk and other journals as well. It's an ideas-based model. The I is for information gathering, D is for decisions and design, E is for engaging and involve, and A is action. There's always got to be actions and there's all got to be solutions. We hear far too much about lessons being learned. But what we really realise is that there are no lessons learned and no one does anything about it. Because if they did, why are things still happening? This is the solution. This is what needs to happen. And the action needs to happen now. And we need to shift towards a health and well-being model, which enables people's rights, human rights, care rights, health justice and social rights to be really embedded within a rights-focused uh, care provision. Now, if we do that, and if we have the panel set up like this, with three co-national directors, we will succeed. If we don't do that, we haven't got a chance. Jim, you're, you're putting forward some innovative solutions based on, on your practice. And we've also had, just last week, an RCM publication on looking at um, the future of learning disability nursing. And I just want to ask Mary about that publication and what that's calling for and your view, Mary, is of some of the proposals in, in that document, which is also looking at, at change. But I completely accept, Jim, maybe a, a different model to the one you're proposing. Yeah, I, you know, I learned disability nursing. I think, you know, as well, a lot of what we see is, you know, obviously with all professions, is the, the end of the profession where you had people retiring, so you've had a, a deficit in numbers, um, and that, that's happening right across, isn't it? But there's a lot of pe- there is a lot of people actually coming into it now. Whether they stay in it, that, that's the other sort of issue, isn't it? But 
I think if you look at learning disability nursing in the last 10 years and what has happened is a number of other services have seen the benefits of learning disability nurses. So they've been employed in other settings, such as children's, um, acute trusts, dementia care. And again, because of the skills and knowledge and the, the ways they communicate and they're quite creative in their roles, they've been an asset to a number of other areas. So, you know, I think we have seen the, the people branching out into other roles. So, you know, I think we need to sort of look to the future and actually do, again, as I go back to this partnership working, maybe having something within the training where there is some sort of co-production with, with other areas of nursing to take forward and actually increase the awareness of learning disability amongst other professions. But, you know, I think that there's lots of scope for the way forward and in taking the profession forward and actually learning from each other. Thank you, Mary. We're coming towards the end of the podcast. So what I'd like to do is ask Scott if there's one of the powerful messages that you've given us this afternoon, Scott, that you'd like our listeners to really take forward into their their practice or into their daily life. What What would it be? So I think it's don't underestimate people with learning disabilities. We can achieve our lives and be independent just like anybody else. For professionals, I think you need to just really take the time to understand us and, and actually help us make this power balance and power shift happen. Because actually, I'm not going to stop banging on about it. I'm going to carry on until it actually happens because it's the right thing to do and because you guys need to be taken account for things and people with learning disabilities, health really matters. We've come to the end of the podcast and we're taking a short mid-season break before our next edition. So we'll be back in three weeks instead of the usual two on July the 16th. In the meantime, what topics would you like us to talk about? We'd love to hear about what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing. That's what Jim did. Just tweet us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters and we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of the podcast. So thanks to our special guests, Scott Watkin. Thank you for inviting me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you all. And Jim Blair. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, uh, likewise, with Scott. And it's always a joy to be working alongside Scott uh, and others. So great to to be here. Thank you all. Thank you, Mary, for co-hosting. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you to Scott and Jim. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our next edition. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.